Good morning. If you would please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4. This morning, Lord willing, we will be covering verses 22 to 30. Last Sunday, you'll remember, we covered the first part of this story. Jesus goes to what likely was the synagogue that he grew up in, in his hometown of Nazareth. And he's well known at that point, all over the region of Galilee, for his teachings, his miracles, his ministry. And so it's probably a packed house on this particular Sabbath day. Everybody's come out to hear the local hometown celebrity teacher. And he's asked to give the sermon, and so he takes a scroll of Isaiah. He unrolls it and goes to what we would refer to as Isaiah 61. And he reads that text. Uh, Look back at verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says, among other things, the amazing and remarkable line, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus is saying, this text in Isaiah 61 that I just read, that's talking about me. He is the Spirit-anointed Messiah from the book of Isaiah, the one that Isaiah prophesies about throughout his book. And his mission is captured in those word pictures in that passage. Metaphors of sinners and salvation. And so there's the picture of the poor. Not referring to socioeconomics, but referring to spiritual poverty, being poor in spirit. But Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor. That their sins can be forgiven. That they can be reconciled to a holy God. Then there's the picture of captives. Slaves to sin, captives of the devil. But Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to the captives. uh, To proclaim forgiveness of sins and thus freedom from its bondage. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And third, there's the picture of the blind. Again, a spiritual metaphor. Uh, Sinners are blinded by the God of this world so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But Jesus is the light of the world. He has come to bring recovering of sight to the blind. So that sinners can perceive the glory of God. So that they can have their eyes opened to their need of a savior. And then run to him for salvation. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Fourth, there's the picture of those who are oppressed, burdened, and crushed Heavy laden because of their sin, because of its effects, uh, the guilt, the condemnation, the shame. But Jesus has come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. By taking that burden upon himself, by nailing it all to the cross in his death. And then fifth, like a summary of all the other word pictures, Jesus has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor Right, the year of Jubilee, 
a year according to Old Testament law in which all slaves would be freed and all debts would be forgiven. Well, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that jubilee who sets us free from our slavery and who dies so that our debt of sin might be forgiven. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That passage from Isaiah 61 is the mission of Jesus so clearly laid out. He is the Spirit-anointed Messiah who will bring salvation for God's people. Now, you'll remember last week we talked about how Luke brings this story, which actually happens chronologically more towards the middle of his Galilean ministry, how Luke takes the story and brings it all the way up to the beginning, right, out of chronological order. And he does that in all likelihood for two reasons. One, because we, as we just talked about, this statement, right, this is such a clear statement of Jesus' mission— Uh, And so understanding what Jesus says about his mission right up front will help us as readers of the gospel uh, to read the rest of his Galilean ministry. But second, and this is what we're going to see this morning, this is a story uh, that is representative of the kind of response that Jesus would generally receive. And just kind of spoiler alert here, that response is going to be one of rejection. It's going to be one of opposition. But even though this is the first instance that we're seeing in this gospel of that kind of rejection and opposition, it shouldn't catch us totally by surprise. Because you'll remember what Simeon said just a few chapters earlier, back in chapter 2. Behold, this child, referring to Jesus, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And so you'll remember that Simeon has already prophesied that Jesus, as he reveals people's hearts, he's going to divide. And so some will rise, the rising of many in Israel. And literally that word is resurrect. And so some will resurrect because of him. But others... In response to his person and his work as the Spirit-anointed Messiah, others will oppose, and those people will fall. And that's exactly what we're going to see today. How Jesus divides, how he is a sign that is opposed, and how the people of his hometown are going to fall because of him. So look along now. As I read the text, I'm going to start back in verse 16 so we get a sense of the whole narrative. And then we're going to talk specifically about verses 22 to 30, uh, what it means, and how we can apply it to our lives. And so here, uh, the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been filled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Even when all else in our life is volatile and subject to change, we know that your word is ever true, the same always. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And so we know that regardless of what is going on in our lives, regardless of what trials or difficulties we are dealing with, that it is always good for your people to, in faith, look to your word. We also acknowledge in this endeavor our great need, because unless the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see, unless the Spirit works in our hearts, we labor in vain. And so we pray that you would be at work in our midst, that we would see this passage and that you would use it to encourage and strengthen and equip your people and that you would use it to draw lost sinners to yourself. We ask all this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. Well, I feel like it's, it's been a while since I've given you a cleverly alliterated sermon outline. Uh, and just be honest, right? You've missed it. Uh, your soul has been craving for this. And so uh, as our guide this morning, we're going to make our way through this story using four points. I'm brought to you by the letter R. Uh, we've got the response in verse 22, uh, the rebuke in verses 23 and 24, Uh, The references in verses 25 through 27, and the wrath, that's wrath with an R, uh, in verses 28 through 30. It's like in elementary school, right? Reading, writing, and arithmetic, the three R's. All right, point number one, the response. What was the response of the people of Nazareth to Jesus' sermon? Look at verse 22, all spoke well of him, and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Uh, Now, presumably, we're told that he began to say to them, and so 
presumably, Jesus said other things that Luke did not record for us. Uh, Luke just kind of records the punchline. Uh, and so how much he said, uh, we don't know. But the response to what he said, uh, that we do know. And at least initially, it is overwhelmingly positive. And that should come as no surprise. I mean, this is the perfect son of God giving a perfect exegesis of the perfect word of God. I mean, can you imagine being one of the listeners on that Sabbath day? It's like what it says elsewhere in the Gospels about Jesus. No one ever spoke like this man. For he was teaching them as one who has authority, not as their scribes. This is a pure wisdom flowing from the one greater than Solomon. And so the people are awestruck. Uh, They're marveling. They're amazed. But it's not just because Jesus is a really good, like, public speaker. Uh, Because look again at the verse. Uh, Gracious words there. That's not just describing how he speaks, like he is a smooth and gracious order. No, it's describing the very grace of God in his words. And so literally, it's words of grace. The people love the words of grace that Jesus is speaking. Words about the Spirit-anointed Messiah from the book of Isaiah, the one for whom they've been waiting for centuries. He's finally here. And they love that. But then, like a cognitive dissonance begins to come into their heads. Uh, We really want the Messiah. And this is great news. Wait a minute. You're that Messiah? Isn't this Joseph's son? The carpenter's son? And so that that cognitive dissonance quickly becomes contempt and resentment. Who does he think he is? Joseph's son. Acting like he's this big deal. Who does he think he is talking like this? Matthew's account gives us a little bit more detail. Matthew 13. Coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? And they took offense at him. And so what begins as an overwhelmingly positive response from the hometown crowd quickly turns into them taking great offense. We know this guy. He is Joseph's son. He's a nobody. He is a carpenter's son. How is he doing these things and saying these things? Point number one, the response. Now, enter the seeker-sensitive church growth consultant at this point. Well, that sermon went really well. There's some grumbling about uh, you being the carpenter's son. Uh, But that's okay. Don't worry, because they're still speaking well of you. Uh, They're marveling at your words. Uh, They'll they'll come back again. Don't worry. Let's just just give them what they want to hear right now. So whatever you do, just send them home on a positive note here. Which brings us to point number two, the rebuke. 
Jesus sternly rebukes the crowds for their response. The secret-sensitive church growth consultant will not be happy. Now, whether they were expressing it out loud or they're just kind of like whispering to one another like, Joseph's son over there. Or maybe they're just thinking it to themselves. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter because here's the thing, Jesus knows their hearts. And he calls them out. 23 and 24, he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. People of Nazareth, here is what you're saying to me in your hearts right now. Physician, heal yourself. What does that mean? Well, just picture you're, you're at the gym, you're working out, and a personal trainer comes up to you and he says, listen, if you sign up with my fitness program, I can get you absolutely jacked in one month. You're like, oh, well, that's pretty tempting. Then you look at him, and he's super scrawny, and he's weak. Like, I don't think this guy can bench the bar. Well, trainer, train yourself. Right? Like, before I give you my money, I want to see proof that what you're selling actually works. Well, in the same way, physician, heal yourself. A physician should prove that he knows what he's doing by correctly diagnosing and treating whatever ailment that he is suffering from. And so in our context here, applied to Jesus, well, the people of Nazareth are demanding that Jesus prove to them that he's really the Messiah, like he says he is, by performing signs and wonders for them. What we have heard you did at Capernaum. And so you see that. They're, they're not satisfied with the overwhelming evidence of the miracles that Jesus has already done that they've heard about. No. No, no, no. That's not good enough for us. We want you to do those same miracles here in Nazareth for us, for our benefit. Here's the thing, the demand for miracles here, what we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well, that's not like a morally neutral curiosity. This is nothing less than a manifestation of, of hard-hearted unbelief. It's like what Jesus says elsewhere. Uh, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Just to clarify one thing. It's not that the desire to have Jesus perform miracles in and of itself is evil, uh, as evidenced by the many times that someone will come up to Jesus and ask for a miracle. Son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, let me recover my sight. Right, Bartimaeus? And then Jesus responds favorably. The difference is that in those instances, those people are asking for miracles in faith. Right? Believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, and that he can, if he chooses to, display his mercy, display his power in that way. But here, this is a demand for a sign in hard-hearted unbelief. We don't believe what you're saying about yourself. 
We don't believe that you are who you say you are. And we don't care about the miracles that you've done elsewhere. Show us a sign now to prove yourself. So the people of Nazareth are arrogantly demanding that Jesus prove himself to them in spite of all the other evidence. Uh, whether it's the, the signs that he's done elsewhere. Or remember, he grew up there. 30 years or so of sinless perfection that he's lived out in front of them. Or how about the words of grace that he just spoke to them? Or even the fact that he just read their minds. In spite of all that evidence, they reject him in unbelief. But that's what unregenerate hearts do. They reject God in unbelief. And their demand for a sign here is just a manifestation of that unbelief. It's really not all that different from how a later crowd would also demand a miracle in unbelief. Mark fifteen thirty two. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. But here's the thing that we see consistently throughout the Gospels about miracles and unregenerate hearts. And no miracle on its own is going to produce salvation. They won't even be convinced if someone rises from the dead. And so Jesus summarizes the situation with another proverb. Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. The people of his own hometown those who thought they knew him the best. Well, they tragically find themselves at the front of the line in rejecting him. There's no way that Joseph's son is the Messiah. And that might be the saddest part of the story. Right? That those who should have known him the best reject him precisely because they incorrectly thought they knew who he was. And so their familiarity with him really acts as a hindrance to believing what is actually true about him. Like everything that he just said about himself in Isaiah chapter 61. And it blinds them from responding properly in faith and worship. Friends, I think there is an application here for us by extension the situation isn't exactly the same, but I think the principle is similar uh, that a sense of overfamiliarity with the things of God can be a stumbling block for genuine uh, childlike faith. And this applies especially uh, to those of us who have been in the church for a long time, uh, those of us who have read the Bible over and over who've listened to hundreds of sermons, those of us who might think ourselves to be familiar with the things of God, we need to especially be on guard. Because we can think that we've already seen everything that God does. And so we take his gracious works for granted. We think we already know what this or that passage means. And so we just skim through it mindlessly in our Bible reading, thinking that, well, we really have nothing new to learn. Or we assume that we've heard everything that there is to hear 
So we just zone out during sermons. Brothers and sisters, let's be on guard. Every time we pick up our Bibles, every time we listen to a sermon, every time we go to a Bible study, we need to pray that God would give us fresh ears to hear anew of his glory, to remove any potential snares of over-familiarity and the complacency and the apathy and the lukewarmness that it may produce, even the prideful contempt that it might produce. May God guard us by his grace. Point number two, the rebuke. Now, at this point in the story, the crowds are a little bit agitated. They're unimpressed. What if Jesus just kind of picks up and leaves at this point? I mean, sure, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown, and he's kind of leaving on a sour note here. But he could have left in peace. They're not trying to kill him yet. Look at how Jesus continues in his rebuke. And he cites two Old Testament references. And this, this is really going to inflame the crowd's hostility towards him. Point number three, the references. So Jesus cites two stories here. uh, Two stories that happen to include the two most famous prophets of the Old Testament. So first there's a story about the prophet Elijah and the widow of Zarephath in verse 25. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So this is a story from 1 Kings chapter 17. Uh, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish crowd here uh, at the synagogue on the Sabbath. And so he naturally assumes that his audience would be very familiar with this story. It's a story that takes place in the time of King Ahab, who, along with his wife, uh, Queen Jezebel, uh, he was one of the worst and most wicked rulers in all of Israel's history. And so together... Ahab and Jezebel, they uh, lead the nation deep into Baal worship, the, the worship of this false god. And so the nation of Israel, basically, at this time, is completely apostate. Uh, like, this is one of the lowest points in their history. And in that context, God sends the prophet Elijah uh, to confront the nation, and particularly to confront Ahab and Jezebel, And in this story, God has sent a severe drought on the land as judgment for Israel's covenant unfaithfulness. And he sends the prophet Elijah to this widow in Zarephath. She's on the verge of starvation. And Elijah performs a miracle. Basically, the woman's flour and her oil don't run out for the length of the drought. And so she and her son have the food that they need to survive. That's story number one. Story number two is in verse 27. Uh, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So that's a reference to a story from 2 Kings chapter 5. 
And if you're not familiar with either of these stories, let me encourage you to just set aside some time, maybe this afternoon, to, uh, to read them. But in this story, you've got this commander, Naaman. Uh, one of his servant girls tells him, well, he's got leprosy, and so one of his servant girls tells him, you, you need to go see this prophet, uh, Elisha. He can heal you. And so he goes, and uh, Elisha basically tells Naaman to go and wash in the Jordan River. And there's some initial reluctance on Naaman's part. Like, I traveled all the way here. I thought you were going to do something cool. You should tell me to wash in the Jordan River. I could have done that back at home. But after Naaman humbles himself, uh, he goes and he does what Elisha said. And he is miraculously healed of his leprosy. So those are our two references. Those are the two stories that Jesus brings up. But we need to ask the question, why these stories? Like like of all the stories in the Old Testament that he could have brought up, why these two stories? Uh, What is his point? Well, look carefully at verse 25. There were many widows in Israel, but... Verse 26, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Zarephath, where this widow lived, was not in Israel. It's in the region of Tyre and Sidon. That is pagan Baal country. As a matter of fact, that's where Queen Jezebel is from. She's a Sidonian. That's where God sent his prophet? Elijah was sent to none of the widows in Israel, but only to Zarephath. Now look at verse 27. There were many lepers in Israel, but none of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. Again, that is outside the borders of Israel. That's in the territory of God's enemies. But that's where God sent his prophet? Elisha was sent to none of the lepers in Israel, but only to Syria. And so you see that. There were widows and lepers in Israel. But in these two stories, God bypasses the people of Israel who had, on the whole, rejected him. And instead, he sovereignly chooses to lavish his grace on a widow from Sidon and a general from Syria to Gentiles outside of the promised land. And now we see why Jesus refers to these two specific stories in speaking to the people of Nazareth. He's telling them that if they think that just because they're from the same town as the Messiah, that they are therefore somehow owed blessings, that they're somehow entitled to miracles, they just don't know their Old Testament. Because in these Old Testament stories, we see that God's grace bypasses those who thought they were entitled to it his own people, because of their rejection of him. 
And instead, it goes to those who were perceived to be undeserving, uh, the least deserving pagan Gentiles. All of that demonstrating that God is not obligated in any way to show his grace in the way that people expect him to. And so despite what they might think to be their right as his hometown, so Jesus is therefore obligated to do miracles in Nazareth for our benefit, what we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. Jesus refuses. Since you've rejected me, I'm going to go elsewhere. I may do things elsewhere in Capernaum or in the rest of Galilee, but not here. Just like Elijah and just like Elisha bypassed the home crowds because of their rejection and went elsewhere, so Jesus is going to bypass the home crowd because of their rejection and go elsewhere. And this is a foreshadowing of all of Jesus' ministry, is it not? The fact that even among the Jewish people, well, grace is going to bypass the religious elite, the, the Sadducees, the, the Pharisees, those who saw themselves as most deserving of God's grace. Well, grace bypasses them because of their rejection of Jesus. But who was it? By and large, who was it whom God did receive? Well, it was those who were thought to be undeserving, the least deserving, the surprising recipients of grace. Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Friends, this is a clear illustration of the sovereignty of God. The God will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and God will have compassion upon whom he will have compassion. Back in the days of Elijah and Elisha, Israel thought that they had a monopoly on God's grace, that they were entitled to his favor. But if God wants to show grace to none of them, but instead show his favor to a widow in Zarephath or a leper in Syria, well, he absolutely could. Because God is sovereign and God will have mercy on whom God will have mercy. And in the days of Jesus, the hometown Nazarites, they would have thought they were entitled to the Messiah's favor. That they, as his hometown, should be the beneficiaries of his power But if God wanted to show grace to none of them and instead show his favor to the rest of Israel and eventually to the Gentiles as well, well, he absolutely could because God is sovereign and he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Brothers and sisters, this is a clear theme we see in the scriptures That salvation is of the Lord. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so as a result, all deserve God's wrath. 
in hell for eternity. But God, again, this is the key, not because of anything in us, and not because we chose him, and not because we decided one day that we would follow Jesus, not because we deserve it, and certainly not because we're entitled to it, but according, but according to his own good pleasure, God has chosen to save certain individuals. Romans 9, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, here it is, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And this makes the crowds furious. There is few things that will get hard-hearted unbelievers more angry than hearing about the sovereignty of God. That in spite of what they might feel entitled to, God owes them nothing. Let me read you this quote from J.C. Ryle. I think he hits the nail on the head here. Quote, of all the doctrines of the Bible, none is so offensive to human nature as the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Man can bear to be told that God is great and just and holy and pure. But to be told that he has mercy on whom he desires, that he does not give an account of all his doings, that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, these are truths that, that natural man cannot stand. End quote. And that's exactly what happens here. The people of Nazareth absolutely cannot stand this. Which brings us to point number four, the wrath. At this point, the crowd has had their hearts exposed. They've heard this judgment from their own scriptures, this irrefutable argument from, from these two stories that they have known their entire lives. So what do they do? Do they repent of their foolish demands for God to display his grace in the way that they want him to display his grace? Do they turn and embrace the Messiah who is standing right in front of them? Do they kiss the sun lest they perish in the way? No. No and no. It's that they double down in their rejection. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. This, friends, is a full 180. They go from uh, speaking really well of him, marveling at his words, and now they're just trying to kill him. And so there's this uh, murderous, uh, wrath-filled mob. They're they're, they're trying to kill Jesus. What's he going to do? Is he going to call down 12 legions of angels? 
Is he, you remember the scene when the soldiers come to arrest him at Gethsemane and he just says, I am he, and everybody falls down. Is he going to do something like that? Is he going to make them all blind? Like that other story with Elisha and the Syrians. Well, the answer is D, none of the above. Look at verse 30. This has to be one of the most anticlimactic verses in the entire Bible. Just so matter-of-factly. But passing through their midst, he went away. And that's it. It's like one of those movies that, you know, the plot's slowly building up, and and the good guys are are in a huge jam, and uh, you're expecting this, like, great climactic finish, but then everything just, like, wraps up really suddenly. And you're kind of left like, what, what just happened? Is that it? But I was thinking about this this week. I think Luke does this very intentionally here. Uh, he is a master storyteller, right? We have seen that already throughout this gospel. Uh, I think he ends this narrative intentionally, as abruptly and as unspectacularly as he possibly can. Uh, first, he's making the point here that Jesus didn't perform a spectacular miracle to get out of this. Because if he did, well, wouldn't that just be giving the people of Nazareth exactly what they were sinfully demanding? Like, just think, if he, think back to the temptation narrative, right? If he just jumps off the cliff and then some angels swoop down to to catch him, well, is he not then just feeding their sinful desires for a sign? And so instead, he kind of performs a different kind of miracle, right? An unspectacular miracle, if, if such a thing exists, he just walks right through them and he leaves. Uh, but second, going back to this movie analogy, I think that the anticlimactic finish to this scene, through that, Luke is telling us that we're not even close to the actual climax of the story. Uh, Jesus would say it over and over again. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And so here, Luke chapter 4, his time has not yet come. And his time is not going to come for another 18 chapters. Now there would come a day when his time would come. And at that point, when the mob comes to get him, well, this time they would put him to death. He would be crucified at the hands of those who rejected him. And so this rejection in Luke chapter 4 is just like a small foretaste of the greater rejection that would come. Point number four, the wrath. Now sadly, this is the last we hear of Nazareth in this gospel. And so in that sense, uh, their rejection of the Messiah and more importantly, God, God's rejection of them was basically complete. Right? And so what Jesus said holds true. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But as we wrap up here, let's kind of begin where, or let's finish rather, where we began. Let's think once again about what Simeon said about Jesus. 
Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And Simeon tells us very plainly, and the Bible tells us very plainly, that there are two types of people. There are those who are opposed to Jesus, who reject Jesus. These people from his hometown of Nazareth, they're just the first example that we see in this gospel. Well, for such people, Jesus is appointed for their fall. He is their stumbling block. Their reaction to him, his person and his work, it's going to reveal the true colors of their heart. Their rejection of God. But then there are those who will come to him in humility. The poor in spirit, the the captives to sin, the spiritually blind, those who are oppressed in their souls, those who see their helplessness and their hopelessness and their desperation and therefore cry out to him in faith. It's such people for whom Jesus has come. Sovereignly chosen by God's good pleasure before the foundation of the world. Well, for such people, Jesus is appointed for their rise, their resurrection, culminating in their ultimate resurrection to eternal life. Well, in the same way, there are two types of people sitting here in this room. But maybe you think that you're kind of just straddling that line. You're trying to remain neutral if you will. And so you'll come to church on Sundays. You're here today. At least you'll come on those Sundays that you feel like coming. But then you'll kind of live how you want Monday to Saturday. And you'll give God some of your time and and some of your money and, and some of your effort. But the Bible has no actual impact on how you live your life. And there's some desire to live godly, and there's some desire to honor the Lord. But your life is full of compromise and hypocrisy. Well, maybe you're not all that different from the people of Nazareth. I mean, they were religious people, as evidenced by the fact that they went to the synagogue on that Sabbath day to hear Jesus. And they liked the preaching. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. If this story ended at that point, we might even conclude that they were regenerate. But all Jesus has to do is to expose their hearts just a little bit. Just bring a little bit of that light onto the darkness And what happens? By verse 30, their true colors come out pretty quickly. The fact is, friend, you can only keep up that half-in, half-out attempt at neutrality for so long. Because when the light shines into your life, when you're confronted by the person and the work of Jesus, or maybe when you go through that trial, The wheat and the chaff are going to be separated because that's what Jesus does. And if not in this life, 
Well, certainly at the judgment. But here's the most important thing for those of you who are trying to toe that line. You might fool others, but you're not fooling God. The Lord knows those who are his. And so if this is you, friend, I call you to repent today, to cry out truly from the depth of your heart for Jesus to save you. And if you do, you will find him to be a gracious and merciful Savior. Let's pray. Father, we never want to be those who presume upon your grace, who would in any way feel entitled to or deserving of your grace. We know that your grace is a free gift that you bestow on your elect. And so we pray that we would be thankful, that we would rejoice, that we would love your sovereignty and salvation. And Father, we pray for those in this room who do not yet know you. We pray that today would be the day that you would affect regeneration in their hearts, that they too might know your grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.